0: Hello. You should be standing in front of a white and gray apartment building with the number 29. Kurfürstendamm 29. The number is right above the glass entrance doors. Can you see it? Then you're in the right place. In this building is the only remaining artists that are here from the 1920s, intact. Don't be misled by this impressive facade. Artists rarely live in such luxurious apartments today, as well as back then. The atelier is in the back house, on the fourth floor. No elevator, of course. That's where the painter Jeanne Mammon lived and worked, from 1919 until her death in 1976. In a two-room apartment, without a kitchen, with a bathroom in the corridor. The flat was very small, but it was affordable, and it was right in the middle of this turbulent avenue. For a young artist in 1919, this was the place to be, but Jeanne stayed here her entire life. My name is Meret, Meret Becker. I'm an actress and musician, and a Berliner. Some years ago, I was in The Harmonists, a film about the most famous music group in Europe in the 1920s, the Comedian Harmonists from Berlin. Besides that, I knew some of them in person. There's a funny coincidence. My grandmother, Claire Schlichting, who was a comedian and a big star at that time too, had the same manager as them. And she had to flee Nazi Germany, just like them. But they all survived, because There were countries that would take them in as refugees. Later, I joined the cabarets and varieties of Berlin myself. But that's another story. For now, I have the great pleasure of becoming Jeanne Mamen for you while we go on a little time travel. I'm going to tell you the story of Jeanne Mamen, a painter who was struggling to survive and enter the artist's circles in Berlin in the golden 20s. The golden years between the First and the Second World War, when arts were flourishing and nightlife was crazy. There was freedom, tolerance and a legendary open sexuality. Jeanne was right in the middle of all this, with her life and her paintings. In these golden years, We're shining brighter here than anywhere else in Berlin. Turn around with your back to the atelier and enjoy the grandeur of this avenue. The city west today might not be the absolute center of leisure and nightlife since it competes with other areas in Berlin, but it's still a flaneur and an upscale shopping street lined with shops, houses, hotels, and restaurants. Look at the girls who go shopping. That's what the girls did here in the 1920s, too. There was this song: When die beste Freundin mit the best friendin', When the best girlfriend with the best girlfriend go shopping, go for a walk, bubbling about it all. Marlene Dietrich performed it for the first time together with Margot Lyon on the stage of the renowned theater Theater und Komödie am Kurfürstendamm, which was founded in 1924 by the great director Max Reinhardt. It's just a little further down to the right on the opposite side of the street. You can't see it well from here. But unfortunately, there isn't much to see anyway, because the original house was destroyed by bombs during the Second World War. The theatre itself has survived, though. All the girls loved this song, especially the girls who loved girls. Jeanne was one of them. Jeanne's years of freedom, though, were threatened by the unstable political situation and the growing fear that came with the rise of the Nazis. The golden years didn't last long. It was only a decade but it was enough to mark history and society forever. Together we will now jump into Jeanne's paintings. Let's explore how this glamorous neighborhood looked, or rather felt, and walk in the shoes of artists, intellectuals, and hookers. Now, face the street with your back at the house. Imagine we are in the 1920s. There are few cars on the street, just horses and carriages, trams and buses. The feeling of the recent war has not yet disappeared, but there are glamorous people around here, men in elegant suits and hats, and women with expensive dresses. And there's the wonderful spirit of possibility in the air. Once we start walking, we'll be back in the 1920s. And it will be Jeanne's voice leading you the rest of the way. So come on. Facing the street, turn left and let's walk down this sidewalk. Hallo, machen wir los? Every morning I come out of my little flat and I find myself in this swirl of this crowded avenue. I stroll a little, I find a place in one of the many cafes and I watch the people, and I paint. Here, I have enough light and inspiration. The city offers me this huge atelier, the Kurfürstendamm. There's a café at the corner. Let's make a short stop there. Stand where the tables of the café begin. Keep the tables at your left, and the Kurfürstendamm at your right. We are in the new west of Berlin. Here live high-ranked civil servants, con-artists, bank directors, doctors, lawyers, pushers, actresses and cocotte. Do you want to see them? Look at your phone. I've painted a scene from the Kurfürstendamm. Just tip anywhere on the screen if the image is blurred. There was a strong beam of light coming from the café on the left. A double-decker bus was driving by in the background. In the middle of the crowded street, two men and two women seemed to be making some kind of deal. One of the women looked resigned, but the other was cool and daring, like a merchant. A prostitute, maybe or it could be a spontaneous flirt among strangers. It's hard to tell. A big buxom woman was dominating the front table of the cafe. Her girlfriend, I presume, with short hair and a hat, was caressing with her fingers the big woman's knee. They were not looking at each other, but they were touching hands and knees. There's a certain familiarity between them. Not necessarily emotional, it's rather unclear. Then this woman approached from the right. She rested her hands on her hips and threw this mocking, sarcastic look over the fur of her shoulders. So urban, kind of respectless, cool but playful and so very sexy. She is what they call the New Berlin Coquette. Let's continue strolling. Head to the traffic light and cross the Kurfürstendamm to the right. Go to the traffic island and stop there. Watch out. It's very busy. Buses and streetcars and horse carriages. Let's go. I'll meet you on the traffic island. Oh, it's loud here. Look left. See how wide it is. A large avenue is what a big city needs. In 1920, Berlin is the third biggest city in the world. Four million people. The Kurfürstendamm was created in 1875 in the example of Les Champs Elysees in Paris. We Berliners have a nickname for it. We call it Kudamm. It was created as the avenue of the Kurfürst, The Prince Elector, Kurfürstendamm. But in our slang, we turn it into the avenue of the Kuh, the cow, Kudam. I have to admit, when I walk down the Kudam, it sometimes makes me sick. So much vanity. In 1920, a film opened in the cinemas called Kurfürstendamm. In this film, The devil realises that lately too many damned have been coming to hell from Kurfürstendamm. So he decides to go take a look for himself. His grandma gives him a device for printing banknotes, because money he will surely need. The devil gets a nice suit from a gentleman's tailor, finds a room in a hotel and is very soon involved in endless love affairs. He launches a film production company, gets deceived, ripped off and in the end is convinced that even the devil can't cope with Kudam. And he returns to hell to his grandma. When I need a break from crazy Kudam, I prefer to take the side streets. Let's do that. Continue crossing the Kurfürstendam in the same direction, carefully. I'll meet you on the other side. With a big avenue, Kurfürstendamm at your back, walk straight up this narrow side street. Look at the houses here. They have doors of expensive wood and high windows. Look at the bay window on the second floor to your right, supported by these statues. Appropriate for the high society, the rich and the famous. Poor artists like me rarely visit the houses of the rich. But sometimes we are invited to the houses of the famous. I'm gonna take you to the house of the biggest movie star of the world, Asta Nielsen. Oh, wait, there's a beautiful garden coming up to the right. Let's have a little visit. We're not in a hurry. Find the red bricks and black metal door to the fence that's surrounding a garden. The door is always open. Go ahead and enter. Follow the path and discover the garden for yourself. I like it in here very much. The house with the winter garden right in front of you was built in 1890 for Richard Hildebrandt, a captain of the marine, who took part in the first and the second German expedition to the North Pole. Now, in the 1920s, it hosts foreign students of Humboldt University. The White House to the left of the garden was also built in the end of the 1800s in the typical neoclassical style. All the houses of this complex are what is called city villas. Feel free to walk around and enjoy the garden it's a public space but imagine the feeling of owning such a house. I was born in a big bourgeois house like these here. I was born in 1890 here in Berlin. My full name is Gertrude Johanna Luise but my mom always called me Jeanne. My parents were Francophiles All of us kids, especially my sisters, we had French nicknames. Lulu, Mimi, Jeanne. When I was 10, our father decided to move to Paris for his business. And for us, it felt more natural than anything. In Paris, we lived in a villa with a garden like this. Maybe that's why I like it so much in here. I love strolling anyway. It's hard to believe that until the beginning of the 20th century, a young woman was not allowed to walk in the streets unaccompanied, if she didn't want to be considered a prostitute. But I could. I owe it to my very liberal parents. Or maybe I should say unconventional. My sister Mimi and I attended the Lycée Molière, which had an important role in the women's movement. Our female teachers there insisted that we continued our studies, which we did. In Germany, women were not allowed in universities. But Mimi and I studied arts in Paris and later we continued our studies in Brussels and in Rome. I had a careless childhood and an inspiring youth. In 1914, I was 24 years old and the First World War broke out. Germany and Austria-Hungary were fighting against the triple alliance of Russia, Britain and France. We were Germans living in Paris. We had suddenly become enemies of the country which was previously our home. Our property was confiscated by the French state. We had to flee. In 1915, we returned to Berlin, which didn't feel like home anymore. Let's leave the garden through the same gate we came in. I'll tell you more about the war on the way to Asta Nielsen's house. In 1915 Germany was a monarchy under Emperor Willem II. Berlin looked so imperious, old, reticent. There were, of course, the circles of the Dadaists and the Expressionists, but I had no connection to them. I felt closer to Edgar Degas and the novels of Gustave Flaubert. All right, with your back to the garden, turn right and continue walking in the same direction. The war ended in 1918, but Europe and our lives were lying in ruins. Imagine walking down these streets and seeing war veterans without arms or legs, begging for a penny. I was penniless too. For the first time in my life I had to make a living for myself. I was desperate for a job and an atelier. Nothing like these that you're passing, of course. As you walk, look at the beige villa to the right with the ornamental facade and the red brick at the bottom. This was built by the famous architect Hans Grisebrach as his home and atelier in 1892. The next house is also an atelier. It was built at the same time by another big architect, Wilhelm Martens. I certainly couldn't afford anything like this. Oh, we've almost arrived at Asta Nielsen's house. Look at the white apartment building on the opposite side of the street. It's got grand brown wooden doors with the number 69 to the right. When it's safe, go ahead and cross the street. Watch out for cars and horses. You should be standing in front of the white apartment building with the number 69. It has magnificent dark wooden doors and the cherubic face of an angel engraved at the top walk up to these doors and search for the doorbell that says hotel it's on a gold plate above all the other doorbells go ahead and ring when someone answers just say that you are with detour and you would like to visit Asta Nielsen's salon go ahead and pause me and press play again once you're inside Are you inside? Okay, don't rush. Take your time to enjoy the marble entrance. That's what it's made for, to impress. Now take the first set of stairs to the landing with the elevator, and then follow the arrow to a second set of stairs. When you get to the next floor, you'll see a double wooden door. If it's closed, ring the bell to your left. Someone will come to show you the way. Just say hello. They know you're with me. Pause me if you need more time. And then press play again once you're on the first floor. Now you're inside the apartment. Turn left into the narrow corridor leading to the piano. Look at the photos on the walls. That's her, the biggest international star of the silent movies, Asta Nielsen. Asta Nielsen comes from Denmark, but she's been making a career for herself in Berlin since 1910. Berlin is a film capital and a really big capital. Look at Asta Nielsen. She's a great actress. But the audience here is massive. And the masses long for this superficial glam, this seductive style. And she gives it to them. I am a little worker in this huge industry, too. I occasionally paint film posters for a living. This corridor leads to Asta Nielsen's living room, her salon. This is where she receives her friends among the many artists and intellectuals. Walk up to the piano, turn right, and you'll be there, in Asta Nielsen's living room. Find a nice place to sit if you want. But please, avoid the green couch. You'll understand why. Enjoy the soft daylight coming from the large windows It creates such a dim and cozy atmosphere. Look at the poster hanging on the wall to the left of the balcony door. It says Hamlet and the name of the diva beside it. It's her in the poster holding the dagger. She played the main part in this film, Hamlet. The film created a sensation when it came out in 1921. Although she isn't the first woman who ever played this role, Zara Bernard had already played Hamlet on stage in 1899. But today the borders between the sexes, the male and the female roles in society, are being questioned and redefined. We live in times of sexual ambiguity, and we love it. Look at the corner with the green couch. I imagine a girl with short hair like a boy. See her on your screen. There she is. She's half lying on the couch. She's only wearing a white negligee and silk stockings. She's offering us a lustful pose, with one leg stretched on the couch, the other resting on the floor. She's looking at a third person in the room. The person who'd left a pair of braces on the back of the armchair to the side. Look at her. Her eyes look tired. With one hand, she's holding a cigarette. Her other arm is falling lifeless to the floor, holding a newspaper that she'd long stopped reading. She looks bored and as apathetic as the naked, sculptured female figure in the corner. Come on, time to go back to the city. Walk out of the salon, back through the hallway and downstairs to the entrance. I'll meet you outside. Press pause now. Press play as soon as you get through the door. You should be back outside. With your back to the door, turn right and start walking. We're heading back to the Kurfürstendamm. In 1918, the First World War was over. Germany and its allies were defeated. The situation was miserable. Destruction, poverty, inflation, unemployment and riots. The Emperor The Kaiser fled the country and we were close to a civil war. Communists, social democrats, monarchists, paramilitaries, total chaos. After one year, the moderate social democrats prevailed. And in August 1919, the new German Republic was established. And that brought a great deal of positive energy to the economy and the society. It gave optimism and a new push to the ambitious bourgeoisie. There was still misery after the war, but now there was also hope. The war had radicalized the artists in Berlin. The new avant-garde movement had appeared all over Europe before the war. Futurism, Cubism, Fauvism and in Germany, Expressionism. Well, combine expressionistic pathos with the tempo of the growing metropolis of Berlin and you've got artists like Ernst Kirchner. Take the chaos and make a composition principle and you've got Dadaists like George Gross and Hannah Höch who criticize the bourgeoisie and the authorities. Bring the socialist artists together and you've got the Workers' Council with Kete Kollwitz and Walter Gropius which opened the way for the founding of Bauhaus. And me, it's 1919 and I'm 29 years old. Before the war, I was still an art student and now I need to use my art to survive. So I paint as I've learned it in my studies and I bring my watercolors around to magazines and newspapers. And I wait. In the meantime, The survivors of this bloody world war, with nine million dead soldiers and seven million dead civilians, just need to celebrate. And they celebrate here, on Kudan. And no music better describes the chaos of a big city than jazz. We'll stop at the corner of this intersection. This big house at your right, with the number 217, is the Nelson Theatre. Here, the Charleston arrived in Berlin for the first time. It was New Year's Eve 1926, and dancing on the stage of the Nelson Theatre for the first time in Berlin was Miss Josephine Baker. She performed her ultra-modern and ultra-primitive dance, as the papers wrote afterwards. She was accompanied by a jazz orchestra and she was wearing her famous skirt made of nothing more than just bananas. Berlin immediately fell in love with her. Look at your phones. See? I told you. There she is crossing this very street. Now we need to cross the Kudam. Cross first to the traffic island, then all the way to the other side. I'll meet you there. Be careful in case more peculiar vehicles pass by. Stop here. From this corner you can see the famous Kempinski Hotel quite well. Look up and to the left, and you'll see the name written in red block letters on the rooftop right next to the fence. Now turn right, leave the hotel behind you, and continue walking on this sidewalk along the avenue. We want to see more of Kudam and its people. Look at all the women in the street. They go to work, earn money, go shopping, and tonight they'll go go dancing. That's so new and liberating. It's only since 1919 that women in Germany have been allowed to vote. Never before were so many women actively involved in the city life. In this life, there's no room for ankle-long dresses with complicated cuts and wide-brimmed hats. They wouldn't fit in the elevators of the new offices. And you can't do sports or dance the Charleston wearing a corset. Of course, the war played its little part in the shortening of dresses, lack of fabric. But fashion coming from Paris was crucial. By the way, I do many illustrations for women's magazines. They pay well because they sell well. We'll make a stop now by the house with the number 26. You should be standing now in front of this impressive building with the four Ionian columns above the entrance and the four statues to the right. This is the Union Palast, which opened in 1912 and was one of the first big cinemas in Berlin. Not a little side room in a pub, with a badly tuned piano, showing short films to a loud audience but a real palace for feature films a film palace with a big screen and an orchestra. It looks more like a temple though it belongs to the major film company Universum Film AG, the UFA for which I design film posters. We'll see more film palaces later In this building under the cinema was the new Café des Westens, a well-known meeting place for artists and intellectuals. There are many around here. If you want to be part of the scene, you just spend your days in the cafés. I will show you another café now, where we can also have a coffee break. Let's continue walking in the same direction we've been going. I spend hours every day in cafés. It's warmer than home in winter. But everyone meets in cafés nowadays. Young, ambitious actresses, writers with their fresh manuscripts, the talented and the not so talented. But all of them artists. The least you want to do is drink coffee. You go there to read the newspapers, to play chess, to discuss the news of the world, to see and to be seen, to draw or to have your portrait made, to get a commission for a book, an article, a painting, to meet the critics. Where else would you do all that? The waiters are mostly nice to the poor artists. We are allowed to spend many hours in front of the same cold cup of coffee. Even tourist groups from the countryside stop by to see the Bohemians. You should be able to see by now the characteristic striped red and white awning hanging over the first floor of the building on the corner up to your left. That's where we're going. This is the famous Café Kranzler, previously Café des Westens and Café Größenwahn. It's been a meeting point since 1893, at first mainly for writers. First it was called Kleines Café, the Small Café. Then it was expanded with halls of billiards and a casino. It lost its central role in the artist's life only after the Romanisches Café opened in 1916, a little further down. Pass the entrance to the subway, and then you should be able to see a rather narrow entrance at your left, just before the awning. Go to this entrance. It has glass doors and a gold handle. Stop here for a minute. It's all gone now. I'm sorry. I forget that you're not actually living with me in the 1920s. Forgive me. I get carried away with my memories. Please bear with me. So much has changed since then and it's painful to bring it back and see what is lost forever. The Romanisches Café was something unique. They called it the waiting room for talent. And we were going there every day for years, just waiting to be discovered, waiting. The Romanisches is lost forever, the Café des Westens too. The Café Kranzler opened in 1932 and at first we avoided it because it was rather middle-class. But nevertheless, you could enjoy a coffee at the same spot since 1893. It's worth a visit. Go ahead through this glass door, pass through the narrow hallway and then exit another door to a courtyard. Then you go through the door immediately to the right, walk straight towards the sign saying Café Kranzler and take the elevator. We're going up to the second floor. If this glass door is closed, use the entrance of the store at your right and ask there how you can get to Café Kranzler. When you've made it up to the café, choose a nice place to sit, order something if you want and I'll meet you there. In any case, Press pause now, and then press play again once you are seated in the café. Are you with me? Look out these large windows and this beautiful view over the cooldome. This striped red and white awning is always part of the image wherever you look. Now look at your screen. Three elegantly dressed women are sitting around a table. They're wearing tight-cut afternoon dresses. All three wear their hats deep on their foreheads, throwing cool, blase looks under their heavy makeup. In the noisy café, under the looks of the man around them and among hasty waiters, these three women remain emblematically silent. Are they waiting for something? Are they just bored? Where do their elegant clothes come from? Hard work in an office? Or men? Or both? In 1923, the government introduces monetary reform that results in a certain economic stabilisation. And the radical political and artistic Utopias that were blossomed at the end of the war are slowly being used up, smoothened. Now, artists paint precisely and realistically. Look around at the customers of this café and try to reflect on their background. That's what I do for hours every day. Sometimes my portraits tend to become like caricatures but they can't compete with the harshness of caricatures by male painters like George Cross and Otto Dix. I'm only trying to see the life behind the obvious features of someone's appearance. I may be critical, but this is what I see, and I just reproduce it. Art critics describe this movement as new objectivity, and suddenly I have a place in it. The editors of satirical magazines and newspapers are now interested in my watercolours. I can sell my paintings. Not only commissioned illustrations for fashion and films, but my personal work. It's very satisfying. And it's another source of income, of course. Between 1920 and 1922, under this café was the Cabaret Größenwahn, which means megalomania. Great name for a cabaret en coulum, isn't it? It was founded by the actress and singer Rosa Valetti. It lasted only two years, but it was enough to go down in history as one of the most important cabarets in Berlin. It was inspired by the great Parisian cabarets of the late 1800s but it also expressed the difficulties and the sorrow of the working class. Rosa Valletti herself often performed here. I love the cabaret. I love the depictions of Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec that I saw in Paris. I'm also allowed backstage, and I paint the dancers, the Revue Girls. I'm kind of fond of one artist especially, Valeska Giet, a fascinating woman. I've made her portrait. Look at your screen. See how she pulls the muscles of her face for some motionless silent seconds. Valeska can dance everything. She can even dance the silence and the pause. I will never sell this painting. It will always be in my atelier. Have a careful look at Valeska's haircut. She has a bob haircut. Me too. Most girls do. All right, time to get going. But if you feel like staying longer, just press pause and enjoy your coffee and the view. I'll meet you back outside at the entrance where we came in under the red and white awning. Here we are again out on the kudam. With the café at your back, turn left and start walking along the kudam. Cross the next street carefully and I'll meet you on the other side. We're heading towards the old church the golden clock. Are you with me? The kudam should still be on your right. The design of the 1920s was all about clear lines. That's the main direction of the Bauhaus movement in architecture, design and fashion. Combine the clear lines with the liberation of the women and you've got the bob haircut. Look at the women in the street. How many of them have short hair? Many. But when it started, it was revolutionary. Can you imagine a young woman going to the Bauhaus School of Design with a long ponytail or elaborate braids? No. You cut your long braids as a commitment to the modern times. I did too. Secretaries, factory workers and movie stars, Asta Nielsen and Louise Brooks, every woman has a bob haircut. For straight hair or curly hair, with or without a hat, it perfectly suits the new slim silhouette of the modern woman. It's a symbol for youthfulness and emancipation. And it's extremely practical. Coco Chanel has short hair too. The new boyish fashion line à la garçon, comes to us from Paris. Garçon means boy in French. And there's a book entitled La Garçonne by the French writer Victor Marguerite, published in 1922. La garçonne is dynamic, self-confident, independent. She wants to determine her life and her love life, of course. We're going to make a quick stop up ahead. Pass the entrance to the subway and walk to the left part of the sidewalk to stand out of the way of hasty pedestrians. Look right to the opposite side of the street. We're standing across the street from the temple, so to say, of expressionistic cinema, the marmoir House. It is called this because, as you can obviously see, its facade is covered in white marble, Marmor. Here, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari by Robert Wiener premiered in 1920. The film denounces the irrationality of authority It plays with our perception of reality, the good and the bad of human nature. And it shows the horror that man can cause. We, my generation, have experienced the Great War. And we know what horror is. I hope that the people who will be passing by this square in the years to come will not need to experience horror again. Look left. A little ways ahead is the impressive Kaiser Wilhelm Church. Let's walk toward the church. We won't visit it now, but you can visit later. I have too many secular places to take you. But I'd like you to take a closer look at it. Let's go. Walk along the sidewalk, always keeping the church at your left. The Emperor William Memorial Church was built in 1895 to commemorate the grandeur of the Emperor William I by his grandson, Emperor William II. We don't celebrate the grandeur of emperors anymore. We have democracy and we enjoy peace. In liberal newspapers they even argue for the demolition of the church. As a typical example, of pompous imperial architecture, which now simply hinders traffic. They don't know that bombs will soon almost do the job for them. In the 1920s, no one expected that in just a few years a second world war would break out. This church will remain a ruin forever to commemorate not so much the grandeur of emperors as the horror of the war. If you want a photo here to remember this place, it's quite simple. You don't have to paint it like I would do. You can just use the camera in the Detour app. Pause me while you do that and press play again when you want to continue. All right, let's continue strolling. See the large curve of the street? This is where the Kurfürstendamm ends. Once you've passed the church on your left, walk over to the three trees slightly to your left, with the benches underneath them. We'll make a stop here. Now look into the distance where the street turns slightly to the right. Imagine that the night has just come. The dark street is lit only by the weak light from some house windows. There are two girls in constant movement crossing each other, meeting and walking away and returning and crossing and changing directions in a slow monotonous dance. Look at them on your screen. One is wearing a white dress with a big fake flower. The others wearing a black dress. They both wear their hats, low on their foreheads, and look expressionless, hard, strict. Two prostitutes are walking down the scene In my time, if you walk down this road, the Straße, you end up at the famous gay bars in Schöneberg. There are ladies' bars and gentlemen's bars. Some have ladies' nights and men's nights, and some are mixed. In some ladies' bars you meet all sorts of women, intellectuals, artists and working-class girls. Others are very chic. There's often a piano, and you might be lucky to see an operetta singer give an impromptu concert. Some bars are hidden in backyards, in cellars or behind dark curtains on the windows to keep out the curious eyes. But when you step inside, especially on a Friday or Saturday night, you will surely find what you've been looking for. Until some time ago, you might also have bumped into Anita Berber, performing the sexiest dance you can ever imagine or just consuming cognac and cocaine. So much cocaine, and so many lovers, men and women. In 1928, Anita Berber died at the age of 28, of tuberculosis. Or, as the poet Masha Koleko would later put it, in vain she died of the complications of living. With the church at your back, turn left and cross this pedestrian plaza. The church should now be at your left. We're heading toward the big avenue that runs parallel to the Kudang. Berlin is very tolerant and famous for its hedonistic nightlife. The nightlife here is not marginalized. It is supported by the culture in general, by films, theater, pulp fiction and magazines that are openly sold in kiosks. I often send my watercolors and sketches to the magazine Die Freundin, The Girlfriend. Now cross this big avenue carefully. I'll meet you on the other side and we'll talk more about Berlin's uninhibited sexuality. Are you with me? With your back to the street, turn left and continue walking. Berlin attracts the free spirits, the different, but also the curious and the sex tourists. A main attraction is the Hirschfeld Museum, part of the famous Institute for Sexual Science, located at the northern edge of Tiergarten. I'm going to take you to a place where there's a nice view over the Tiergarten. Since the mid-1800s, medical scientists in Berlin have argued about same-sex love, whether it is a natural thing or a perversion. The term homosexuality is actually a German invention. It appeared as homosexuality for the first time in 1869 in a pamphlet that spoke out against paragraph 175 of Prussian law which mandates that male homosexuality be persecuted as criminal. Female homosexuality in my day is not criminalised. It is more tolerated by society and law. There is one scientist, though, who has changed our perception of homosexuality. Magnus Hirschfeld. He has been actively fighting for the abolishment of paragraph 175. Coming up to your right is a big staircase. Do you see it? Walk to the top of it and then up a second set of stairs. In 1918, Hirschfeld founded the Institute for Sexual Science. It includes a museum and a medical center. It supports and gives refuge to anyone who needs it. Magnus Hirschfeld is a pioneer in theories of transsexuality too and he also performs gender reassignment surgeries. The institute promotes legal reforms for all sexual minorities as well as progressive ideas about marriage, birth control and abortion. It's really one of a kind. But there's one more reason for Berlin's tolerance towards sexual minorities and that has to do with the police. Head up the second set of stairs, we're almost there. Under the leadership of an innovative commissioner, the Department of Homosexuals and Blackmailers found creative new methods to fight prostitution, which flourishes in places like the dark pathways of the Tiergarten Park. Here we are at the top of the staircase. Walk to the railing to your left, overlooking the park. Right in front of us is the zoo, and behind it lies the vast green area of the park. If you stand by the railing, you are facing the north. At the northern edge of Tiergarten Park, slightly northeast from where you are standing now, is the Institute. Or It was, I should say. There may be some visitors here looking at the zoo, but we're not here to take a look at the zoo. Continue walking to the right and choose a quiet place to listen. Step back from the railing so that you can enjoy a wide view over the park. Imagine the numerous little pathways among the dense trees, and around the lakes. This is where couples meet, and especially many gay men meet. The Tiergarten is huge, and has many dark corners. This society has many dark corners. The very existence of the paragraph 175 pushes people to hide and inspires sexual blackmail. Let's go back to the noisy street, and I'll tell you about the strange policy that the Berlin police adopted in the late 1800s. Head back down the stairs, all the way down to the sidewalk. Since paragraph 175 criminalized specific sexual acts and not homosexual association, the Berlin police permitted the operation of same-sex venues. So they identified male prostitutes and observed them in order to help the victims of blackmail. This way the shadowy and hidden sexual minorities became visible and they were tolerated and they could form communities. In turn, these communities made themselves accessible to doctors, writers and journalists, who documented this emerging identity, this vibrant gay life, which I put in my paintings. Stop here and look at your screen. It is Carnival. The girls are all dressed up nice and colorful. An oversized red hair bow, a tall military red hat, small party hats swinging fringe dresses and red lips, so many smiling red lips. Paper streamers fall like red rain in the thick air. And then I see her. She's wearing black male trousers, white shirt without arms, but with cuffs around her wrists and a deep décolleté revealing her slim figure. A silk scarf. An excellent piece, from the guardrobe of a man of society, is loosely thrown around her neck. She puts her fists on her hips and projects her pelvis forward. She has a black top hat, short blonde hair and a cigarette hanging from her lips. It's like she says, look at me, I'm here, now, and the world is mine. Then suddenly, her red-haired girlfriend approaches from behind, with eyes closed and arms raised to the music, and drags her back into the swirl of the dancing crowd. We're not afraid to be queer and different. If that means hell, well, hell, we'll take the chance. They're all so straight, uptight, upright and rigid. They march in lockstep, We prefer to dance. That song accompanies our nights, our lavender nights. Das lila Lied, the lavender song. It was written by the cabaret composer Misha Spulianski and the songwriter Kurt Schwabach in 1920. It was dedicated to Magnus Hirschfeld. And it became the very first gay anthem. Let's continue walking down the stairs. We see a world of romance and of pleasure. All they can see is sheer banality. Lavender nights, our greatest treasure. Where we can be, just who we want to be. You should be at the bottom of the stairs now. Turn right and continue walking. To your right you will soon see the big cinema called the Zopalast. It has a slightly curved facade with huge posters of the current screenings. Let's stop in front of it. Okay, now we're standing right in front of the Zoopalast. In this cinema the film Metropolis by Fritz Lang premiered in 1927. The film is set in a futuristic urban dystopia. But it describes our times so well. It is influenced by Cubism, the Bauhaus and by the skyline of New York. Now, turn your back to the cinema and look at the high-rises on the opposite side of the street. Shortly after the premiere of Metropolis, the whole world felt the influence of the skyline of New York. In October 1929, the Great Depression began. The stock market on Wall Street crashed and the whole Western world seemed to be collapsing like dominoes. The financial crisis destabilizes our young German Republic. People seem to lose their trust and hope in democracy. It seems like they are looking for a new leader again. Now look right. You can clearly see the Zoo train station. That's where we're heading now. So stay on this sidewalk and start walking towards it. Look at the elevated station. The Zoo train station is one of the oldest and biggest in Berlin. The first metro line opened here in 1902. From here, you can take the subway which leads to the proletarian eastern part of the city, to Alexanderplatz. It's the center of the working class with the cheap, dark, smoky pubs, cheap beer, and the cheap love. Beside every big train station in the city, there's one cheap restaurant. Here, there was Ushingers. Walk towards the corner of the street. Go to the stairs to your right that lead down to the subway. Don't go down the stairs. Watch the people who are getting something to eat on the way. Just be discreet. Step out of foot traffic and stand by the subway stairs. Imagine that. You walk through the sad crowd of the restaurant ushering us. Most are standing. So will you. Who wants to spend much time here? This is not for pleasure. This is out of need. There's a young couple. Look at them on your screen. A tall, thin young man. His head is bent down. His shoulders heavy. His hands are strong workers' hands. He's looking down to the plate in front of him. His girlfriend is lying her tired head on his side, staring at the same plate. Are they going to share this small meal? And this one and only glass of beer? They are both silent, resigned, leaning on each other. In the background, there's the anonymous, undefinable crowd, the people. Now turn your back to the stairs and keep the zoo train station on your right. We're walking down the street that runs parallel to the station. So with your back to the subway stairs, cross this next street and continue walking. But pay attention. As we cross this street, we are leaving the decade of 1920 behind and entering a new era. I'll meet you on the other side. Let's continue walking straight with the train tracks on your right. Welcome to the 1930s and to the New Depression. There's a person in German politics who takes advantage of the world financial crisis. It's Adolf Hitler, and he becomes popular by opposing everything. The Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, he calls an injustice to Germany. The democratic government, he calls inefficient. Capitalism as well as communism, he calls a Jewish conspiracy. In the elections, in September 1930, Hitler's National Socialism Party wins 19% of the seats in Parliament. We're heading to the squarish white shopping mall on the corner, diagonally across the street. Cross the streets in whatever order makes sense and I'll meet you there. Okay, keep the shopping centre at your left and the zoo train station at your right and head towards the elevated train tracks. It is 1932. The news about our political situation is unsettling. There are new rounds of elections continuously. And still no stable government. There's poverty and fear. In the last round of elections the Nazis got 37%. Yet we continue living almost as before. And my career has just started really moving forward. Kurt Tucholsky, one of the most important intellectuals of our time, wrote a piece titled, Answer to Jeanne Mamin," to me. And I had my first big personal exhibition in a gallery, in the famous Gorlit Gallery. But how can I be happy when on my way home, I see people sleeping under the bridges of the S-Bahn? Let's pass underneath the bridge and continue walking in the same direction. In the meantime, I am finally enjoying my first steps into the artist circles. Look at your screen. The gallerist Fritz Gorlit himself offered me a chance to do the illustrations for the German edition of the Songs of Bilities. It's a collection of love poems, written in 1894 by the French poet Pierre-Louis. He imitated the style of the ancient Greek poet Sappho. variations on the subject of lesbian love. The theater is the impressive white building on the opposite side of the street to your right. Stand opposite its entrance, and step out of foot traffic. This is the Theater of the West, a renowned theater. It opened in 1896, the very first theater in this area of Charlottenburg. The greatest tenor of all time, Enrico Caruso, has appeared on this stage. In the 1920s and 30s, it plays revues and operettas while in the basement a revolution begins. In 1921, the legendary political cabaret Wilde Bühne, wild stage opened here by the actress and singer Trude Hesterberg. There are critical voices in this society who also resist Hitler's populism. On the stage and in the audience of this cabaret, the most revolutionary theater people and intellectuals gather Kurt Tucholsky and Bertolt Brecht and the anarchist writer Erich Mühsam. Lately I very much enjoy the company of a young engineer and a talented sculptor too, Hans Uhlmann. We share the same love for French literature and have similar ideas. Hans believe strongly that socialism is the solution for the misery of the world. I don't know. The wild stage only survived a couple of years, like most cabarets. In 1931 Friedrich Hollander opened the Tingle Tunnel Theater here, where Marlene Dietrich sang her international hits from the Blue Angel. Let's continue walking in the same direction. To the right, you can see Delphi. It's a big dance hall, one of the many that started appearing here like mushrooms. Something like 10 years ago, when our democracy was young and everyone just wanted to celebrate. We still live in a democracy, but the Nazis have began terrorizing the city. There are often street fights with the communists and recently there was the first open attack against the Jews. We'll stop briefly at the next corner. Stand here and look left toward the bridge with the tracks. Behind it is the synagogue of Fasanenstraße. Or it was, I should say. The Nazis will later destroy it. But now I want to tell you about something that happened in September 1931. It was a Saturday evening, a synagogue before. It was the traditional New Year celebrations. Then somewhere between 700 and 1500 angry young men started gathering here. What followed is hard to describe the Nazis attacked the Jews who were leaving the synagogue, blindly hunting families, men, women, the elderly. They continued down towards the Kurfürstendamm to the Café Reimann, which is owned by a Jew. They beat the customers and destroyed the café. What is going on? How are they allowed to do that? This is an open, tolerant democracy. Or is it not anymore? The next morning, the headline in the liberal newspaper read, Where was the police? I'm wondering too. But I'm also wondering, how could that happen in the most crowded avenue of Berlin on a Saturday evening? Hans has hope and trust. He's a member of the German Communist Party, but I'm not the type of person who belongs to political parties and associations. I'm not even registered with a health insurance company nor at the Female Artists' Association. All my life I've had one wish: I've always wanted to be just a pair of eyes walking through the world unseen only to be able to see others. Let's continue in the same direction as before. Cross the street carefully. Keep walking straight. In the election of November 1932, the Nazi party became the largest party in the parliament. After a series of discussions and machinations on January 30th, 1933, Hitler was sworn in as chancellor. We had so many chancellors in the last few years. No one believed that this one was going to stay longer. Journalists, politicians, writers and diplomats argued that Hitler was not really dangerous. In February of 1933, the Reichstag, the House of Parliament, is set on fire the communists are accused and persecuted but the fire is also used as a reason to suspend civil liberties altogether in march the parliament votes for the enabling act which allows the chancellor hitler to enact laws without the consent of the parliament and the limitations of the constitution this is the end of democracy, as far as I'm concerned. The other day I helped Hans at distributing anti-fascist pamphlets. Hans was arrested and put in jail. Turn left at the next corner and continue walking. I've been unemployed since February. Most of the magazines for which I've been working are banned. My work is considered degenerate, like that of so many others, and it can't be published anyway. I have no intention whatsoever of adjusting myself to the new regime. I've survived worse. I'm not afraid. Hans is out of jail now, but he's unemployed too. We have a car together and we sell second-hand books on the Kurfürstendamm. On May 10, 1933, 25,000 books were set on fire, right in the centre of Berlin. They were by authors that the Nazis characterised as degenerate. Keep walking straight under the train tracks. It's now summer of 1933, Hitler needed only five months to destroy everything that existed in Germany outside the Nazi party. The golden twenties are tragically coming to an end. I just hope that we didn't celebrate freedom and tolerance for nothing. The gay bars and associations are now illegal. Some people try to continue meeting under cover. My sister wants to follow her girlfriend to Tehran. Most artists, intellectuals, left-wing and gay activists, they lose their jobs. They are being persecuted and are forced to immigrate. Bertolt Brecht, Masha Kalecko, Friedrich Hollander, George Gross, Faleska Geert, Rosa Valletti, Erich Kestner, Käthe Kollwitz, I could go on forever. Modern art as a whole is being considered Jewish, communist, anti-German, degenerate. The words have lost their meaning. The world is losing its meaning. Who should I follow and where should I go? I think I would just immigrate in myself. Here it is. My personal secret land of immigration. Walk until you see a golden column sticking out of the building to your left. Just past it, you'll see a pair of double glass doors. Are you in front of the glass doors? Go on through the doors. After you walk in, follow the corridor straight ahead past the shops. You'll see another set of glass doors that lead you out to a courtyard. Walk into the courtyard and I'll meet you there. This is my little oasis. Isn't it nice? You can hardly hear the noise of the Kurfürstendamm here. On the opposite side from where you're standing you can see the back side of the Kempinski Hotel. And to your right you see the back side of the building on Kurfürstendamm 29. We saw the front at the beginning of our walk together. Look up to the fourth floor. There's one window with the kind of square pieces of glass that are typical for an atelier window. Yes, that's mine. And this is where I leave you. And this is where I Meret, the voice of Jeanne, join you again. Jeanne's story ends here. It is carried on now only in her paintings. Jeanne Mammon lived in this atelier and flat from 1919 until her death in 1976. This little, quiet, introverted woman lived here for almost 50 years and died poor and mostly unknown. She is only now being rediscovered and considered to be among the great artists of the Weimar Republic, of this libertine, provocative period, full of contradictions, full of conflicts, full of an unstoppable power. See now on your screen how Jeanne saw herself a self portrait. 1926 when we first met her. Now look up at this window and imagine. During the Second World War the bombs broke the glass. The freezing north wind blew in. Jeanne had to burn her furniture and her paintings to keep warm. Her realistic period was over. She was influenced by Picasso and Cubism. After the war was over, the situation didn't improve much for her. She was supported by a few faithful friends who bought her paintings or sent her help from abroad. Jeanne never stopped painting. When she had nothing to paint with, she used the glossy paper from candies and old cables. She even used the cords from the packets that she received in the mail to make pictures. She never wrote a detailed biography. I'd rather paint, as long as I still have the means, she said in her last interview. This is also a kind of a long-time diary. You should always write that my pictures were created between 1890 and 1975. Jeanne Mamon died on April 22nd, 1976 in Berlin she was 86 years old she had been working on her last painting for very long see it on your screen it's called the promise of a winter it's very abstract the background and dominant color is white this white color has been painted Again and again, in many layers, white on top of white, creating a thick layer of color. As she said in this last interview, Now I paint everything in white. In a hundred thousand years it will all have turned golden. Auf Wiedersehen, goodbye, and thank you for taking this walk with me.